A lot of us want to eat better for the planet, but we're not always sure how to do it. I'm Tamar Haspel. And I'm Michael Grunwald. And this is Climavores, a show about eating on a changing planet. We're here to answer all kinds of questions. Questions like, is fake meat really a good alternative to beef? Does local food actually matter? You can follow us or subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent at Kaiser Health News, and I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, January 12th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Margot Sanger-Katz, The New York Times. Hello. And Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, everybody. So no interview this week, but lots of news. So we will get right to it. We're going to start with the new Congress, where the House finally has a speaker after 15 rounds of full chamber roll calls. Uh, settling the speaker meant that the rest of the House could be sworn in and things like committee chairs elected. Two key health committees, Energy and Commerce and Ways and Means, will both have new chairs, uh, not just new because they're Republican, but new because they have not chaired the committee previously. Energy and Commerce will be headed by a woman for the first time, Kathy McMorris-Rogers of Washington State, who's had a longtime interest in health policy and was also in the Republican leadership. Over at Ways and Means, the new chairman is Jason Smith of Missouri, who I confess I had never heard of before this. Does anyone know anything about him? And does he have any interest in health care? Most of what he's said about chairing the committee has been about things other than health care. It's been a lot on taxes, for instance. The new House majority is very exercised about the IRS funding that the previous Congress approved and trying to get rid of that. But he has shown some interest in, you know, some telehealth provisions. And so I think also I'm sure we're going to discuss some interest in, uh, shall we say, revisiting uh, Medicare's benefits and uh, funding. Yeah, we're going to get to that next. <laughs> um, so, so there could be some things, but it, it doesn't seem that he's been a big healthcare guy or will be a big healthcare guy going forward. In the olden days, when I started covering this, the chairman of the Ways and Means Committee frequently did not have either an interest or an expertise in healthcare, but the chairman of the Ways and Means Health Subcommittee did. That's where pretty much everything came from. Do we know yet who's going to be who's going to chair the Ways and Means? We do not. Well, Health Subcommittee, so we'll wait to see that. But yes, I, that's even though you know I, I I read Chairman Smith's you know little introduction about what he's interested in. And I know he mentioned rural health, but he did not anywhere mention Medicare. And of course, the Ways and Means <laughs> Committee has jurisdiction over most of Medicare in the House. It is going to come up, as far as we can tell. Right. One imagines so because some of the promises that leadership has made to its members to think about how to balance the budget in the long term, to consider entitlement reform, whatever that may mean. And, you know, Medicare is where the money is. So you would think that the Ways and Means Committee would want to be looking seriously at how to reform the program if that's the interest of leadership on this policy area. And they've already said that they want to tie any debt ceiling vote, which one of those things that Congress absolutely has to do to reforms, quote unquote, of the Medicare and Social Security programs, because, again, as Margaret said, that's where the money goes. So we, we expect to see Medicare as an issue, regardless of what the Ways and Means Committee does, right? 
That's right. There were a lot of calls for Democrats to address the debt ceiling issue during their final months in power. They did not do so. That means that it's going to be a big, messy fight this year. One one of the biggest things to watch. This is an instance where the Republican House majority will be able to flex its muscles, even though they don't have the Senate and White House, because they can trigger a budget standoff that puts the uh, faith and credit of the country in uh, jeopardy and demand concessions, including cuts to Medicare. So we'll see how that goes. Although I will say Senator Brian Schatz of Hawaii was on Twitter and didn't ask me anything much to the horror of his communication staff. But one of the questions that somebody asked him was, why didn't you do the debt ceiling? And he just said, we didn't have the votes. So that at least answers the question of why didn't they take care of this before the Republicans took the majority back? Well, one thing we do know is going to happen is that the new Republican-controlled House is going to do a lot of investigations. Indeed, one of the first orders of business in the new Congress was the reestablishment of a committee on the COVID pandemic with a new focus on investigating the origins of the virus and the government's response to it. <laughs> what are we expecting out of that? As you said, Julie, I think two of the things is, one, they're going to do more investigations into the origin of the virus. Republicans pushed the potential theory that this was born out of a lab in China and not necessarily something more naturally occurring. And I think a lot of scientists have said this theory has been fairly close to disproven and find that like the focus on it kind of distracts from really dealing with the current pandemic. But we should expect a lot of that. And that will include, I think, a lot of relitigation of Anthony Fauci and his sort of particular role in the NIH and funding different um, types of research on viruses, both in the U.S. and abroad. The second thing I think they're going to look very closely at is how the U.S. has spent the COVID funding that Congress has doled out and appropriated. That's certainly a lot of money. And, you know, I think, again, oversight is always probably, you know, it's a good thing to see, you know, if Congress gives money, are we spending it? Are we, you know, does it actually get to where it needs to go? Does it go to where it's supposed to go? I think that's, in general, I think most people think that's a good thing. Sometimes what ends up happening is it gets taken a little bit to like this like disingenuous step forward in Washington where everything gets questioned or they pick on jurisdictions for not spending the money fast enough when it's just not realistic. So you have to like kind of like read between the lines really carefully when you're looking at some of the findings from that type of work. Because sometimes, again, when you give a state a million dollars to do something, they're not often able to make that change in two months. And then if they do, they get criticized for spending it on the wrong thing. Right. So it's, it's, there's but, a, there's a... but I will say, like, speaking as a journalist, not as a congressional investigator, I do think that the COVID funding is really ripe for a lot of investigation. There's already been very good reporting that a lot of the small business programs were, like, broadly defrauded. Um, you know, I think there was a real emphasis by Congress and in a bipartisan way, you know, Republicans obviously voted for these bills as well. But I think there was a real emphasis on just sort of getting money out the door. People were so scared of a catastrophic economic collapse that unlike a lot of programs that Congress designs with that fund various things, there weren't a lot of initial safeguards. There wasn't a lot of process um, or administrative burden associated with getting money and so that means like it really, I think, is valuable to look and see where did it go? Who may have defrauded the program? What are ways that in the next crisis it might be possible to do these kinds of programs in a way that is more efficient? You know, it occurs to me that it, in addition to the small business money, hospitals got a whole lot of money as part of these programs. And again, there's been some journalism of, about this, but I do think I'm all for more oversight, having to learn some real lessons that I agree with Sarah, that there's probably some of this that's going to veer into the disingenuous and kind of got 
gotcha. But there may be some useful and interesting findings as a result of this process as well. And, and as we saw with the January 6th committee, Congress has powers that uh, the journalists don't. Uh, you know, as we know, the Justice Department has powers and Congress doesn't. But Congress has pretty good investigatory powers. They can subpoena things when they need to. So, yes, I imagine we're going to learn something about the fate of all of those dollars that went out the door. Just to be fair, you know, uh, Republicans have sort of claimed that the Democrat-led effort to investigate COVID didn't have any financial accountability aspect. That's not true. It did. They really scrutinized like a lot of government contracts, like no-bid government contracts that funneled lots and lots of money to things that did not, you know, pan out or help anybody. There has been some of that already, but agree that there's definitely more to look at. And there obviously there was a Republican and a Democratic administration handling the COVID pandemic. So one presumes there are things to investigate on both sides. Well, even while the House committees are gearing up, Republicans are bringing statement bills to the floor, bills that we know the Senate won't take up and the president won't sign. And despite the fact that abortion rights drove a lot of the midterm elections in the other direction, two of the first bills brought to the floor by the new Republican majority seek to do the bidding of anti-abortion groups. This apparently making Republican moderates, particularly those in swing districts, not so happy. Alice, are we looking at pretty much the same split in the Republicans in the House as in a lot of states, sort of between the people who think that, that Republicans didn't do well because they should have done more and people who think that Republicans didn't do well because they should have done less? Yeah, absolutely. And there's a split on like how to talk about it or, or whether to talk about it as well. It's not just like the actions, it's the messaging in addition. And so, yes, there are some in the House who are like, why are we doing this? Why are we taking these votes that have no chance of becoming law? It just puts our members from swing districts in a more vulnerable position. The things they voted on so far this week have pretty unanimous support on the Republican side, I would say. I think where you could start to see some bigger divides are, you know, when they get into votes on like a, an actual national abortion restriction that would put a gestational limit on the procedure or something like that, which absolutely some members want to do and want to take a vote on. I think that's where you could start to see some Republicans being like, wait, 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 <laughs> why are we doing this? But the things so far are, um, like you said, they're messaging bills, um, but they're ones that have pretty broad support on the conservative side. And we should mention, I mean, one, one of them was just a, a sense of Congress that, you know, bombing pregnancy crisis centers is bad. <laughs> I, I'm not going to give credit for this correctly, but I saw a tweet on this topic uh, last week when the list of demands and the list of these bills that we're going to get a vote was released where someone asked, oh, DCCC co-author this list. Where I, I do think there is kind of an interesting tension, as Alice said, where the particular message bills that the most conservative members of the House Republican caucus want to vote on are those issues where we see in public opinion polling, where we see in the last election that the majority of Americans are not really with those most conservative Republicans. And I think a lot of moderate Republicans would just prefer not to vote on those issues, particularly because they know that they can't make them policy. And, uh, you know, we were talking about changes to Medicare and Social Security, and I think that also falls very much in that category where, you know, there might be a situation in which if Republicans really thought that they could reform these programs, maybe they would want to take the political risk, because I do think it's an important long term goal of many Republicans. But I think there's also a frustration, you know, why would we take all these votes on something that is generally unpopular? You know, everyone knows that both Social Security and Medicare are really, really popular programs, and people are very weary of 
changes to them. You know, there is a political risk in taking a bunch of votes saying that you want to pull money out of those programs or change them structurally when you can't even achieve it. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, during Wednesday's abortion debate on the House floor, Republican moderate Nancy Mace of South Carolina kept saying to any cable outlet that would put a microphone in front of her that Congress should be making birth control more widely available instead of voting on abortion. But we are also seeing the first shots fired in an effort to restrict birth control. Well, last month, a Trump-appointed judge ruled that the Title X family planning program is illegally providing contraception to minors. Now, this is a fight that dates back to even before I started covering it. It was called the squeal rule in the early 1980s, an effort by the Reagan administration to require parental involvement before teens could use Title X family planning services. It was eventually struck down in federal court, but now it's back. It's, it's where we're at it. I think it's really important to watch things in law and policy that are just directed at minors because inevitably it does not stop there. Like that's sort of the testing ground. It's where people sort of are more comfortable with more restrictions and more hoops to jump through. But as we've seen with like gender affirming care, it doesn't stop there. What sort of tested out as a policy for minors is inevitably proposed for adults as well. And so what's um, the adult version of this, Alice? Like who like like spousal consent? Yes, there had been. I was just going to say not so much in, in contraception, although originally it was, but also in abortion that, yeah, that if there's a partner that the partner would have to consent. But there's also been spousal consent stuff for like more permanent um, t- getting your tubes tied, those kinds of things. Um, that, that's been yeah. a, a, a debate as well. And I mean, in the abortion space, we've seen this for in terms of like traveling across state lines for an abortion. That's been a restriction for minors. That's also been proposed for adults. So it's just a space we should absolutely watch as well as Title X program continues to be a space for proposed restrictions. It's a lever that they're able to pull because it does have federal funding and it does have constraints that other pots of money don't have. My favorite piece of trivia is that the Title X program has not been reauthorized since 1984 because Congress has never been able to find the votes. You know, when the Democrats were in charge and wanted to do it, the Republicans would have all of these amendments that the Democrats probably couldn't fight off. Um, the Republicans wanted to do it and put all these sort of stringent rules that the Democrats wouldn't have. So literally, we've, with this program has been, you know, now it, it gets funded every year, but it's been marching along for now several decades without Congress having formally reauthorized. Yeah, that's why you you keep seeing different presidential administrations trying to put their stamp on it through rulemaking, which, of course, can be rolled back by the subsequent president, as we've seen with with Trump and Biden. And so it it just keeps going back and forth. And these clinics that are out there getting this funding, which, again, can't be used for abortion, for contraception, STD testing, you know, fertility stuff, like all kinds of stuff, but not abortion. But they keep having to comply with these like wildly different roles. It's really difficult. Yeah, it is. All right. Well, last week we talked about the Biden administration's effort to make abortion pills more available through both pharmacies and the mail. On the one hand, some abortion rights advocates say that the FDA is still overregulating the abortion pill by requiring extra hoops for both pharmacies and doctors to jump through in order to offer or write prescriptions for medication that's proved safe and effective over two decades. On the other hand, we now have the specter of abortion opponents protesting at CVS's or Walgreens near you. And Alice, they're already planning to do that, right? <laughs> Yeah, that's right. They would have done it sooner, but they didn't want to step on the March for Life, which is coming up in a couple of weeks. And so they're planning these protests at CVS and Walgreens around the country for early February, trying to pressure the company to walk back its announcement that they will 
participate in the distribution of abortion pills in states where they remain legal, which is by our count, uh, currently 18 can't do this either because abortion is banned entirely or because there are laws specifically restricting how people get the pills. Sarah, I want you to talk about some of these extra hoops that have to be jumped through because a lot of people think it's just for this pill and it's not. This is something that the FDA has for any drug that's potentially abusable, right? Yeah, I wouldn't say abusable is the right word. Um, but basically, people call this a REMS. It stands for Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. And it's actually an authority Congress gave the FDA to, we use this term safe and effective, but we know all drugs, even when we say that safe term, come with risk. And the idea here is that when the benefit-risk balance would be so that it would be, FDA might say, okay, this is actually too risky to approve. However, we think we could make it kind of safe enough if we put in a little extra safeguards instead of just sort of letting it go out there, here's a drug, doctors, you can prescribe it, um, kind of follow the normal pathway, which is that the federal government or at least the FDA doesn't really have a lot of say in exactly how the practice of medicine works. That's left up to states and you know doctors individually. They implement other practices to sort of help ensure that safety balance is there. So one sort of famous example is Accutane, which is an acne drug, is incredibly harmful to a developing fetus and birth defects. So women of pregnancy, you know, sort of bearing age are usually required to take regular pregnancy tests and so forth and monitor the status of that. And you're not supposed to use the drug while pregnant because of the incredible harm you do to a baby. So there's everything from things like that to just simply more written literature might be provided for certain drugs. Sometimes in the cases of the abortion pill, you know, who could actually dispense it and when was restricted. Sometimes there are particular sort of trainings doctors have to take to get that extra sort of authority to prescribe the drug. And again, the idea is that just to sort of provide a little extra safeguard. Again, the controversy over the years with this pill is that people feel like it doesn't meet that standard to have a REMS, that it can be safe and effective kind of through our normal prescribing systems. It actually, Stat this week had an interesting interview with Jane Henney, who was the FDA commissioner when they first approved this drug. And she... Um, yeah, in the year 2000. So. Right, which is actually... <laughs> right at the end of the Clinton administration. Actually predates sort of this formal REMS authority. But there were others, different authorities that then sort of evolved into REMS. But she sort of said she thought that a lot of these restrictions would be gone by now and that what at the time what they were waiting for was more kind of U.S. specific experience with the drug because what they were basing the original approval on was a lot of use of the drug in France, which had such a different health system than the U.S. They were a little bit uncomfortable, I guess, sort of opening the floodgates in a way. So I, I thought that was like an interesting historical point that came out this week. But clearly, Alice, I mean, this is going to be the next big fight in abortion, right? It's trying to restrict the abortion pill. Absolutely. I've been writing about this since before Roe versus Wade was overturned. The pills were already becoming one of the most popular and now are the most popular way to terminate a pregnancy in the U.S., which, you know, makes sense. You can take them in the comfort of your home with the people that, you know, you want to be with you, you know, not in a scary, you know, medical sort of environment. It's also a lot cheaper than having a surgical procedure. 
So, but then of course, with the pandemic, people started using them even more because it was more dangerous to go to a, a clinical setting. And so this has been a big focus of, you know, both sides of this fight for a long time, you know, either how to increase access to the pills or restrict them. Also, now that Roe versus Wade has been overturned, the pills and the ability to order them online from overseas in this sort of legal gray area, that's been a major way people have been getting around state bans and the anti-abortion groups know that. And so they want to look at any way they can to crack down on this. And so with the Biden administration opening up a new potential pathway with these local retail pharmacies, they're, of course, going to try to crack down on that as well. I mean, we talked about this before on the podcast, but I think this issue of like federal preemption, if it gets teed up, is going to be a big thing that's beyond just abortion in terms of when does FDA's approval of a drug trump state regulations around how it's going to be used and um, you know, I feel like some people have not been satisfied on the who want more access to the abortion drugs in terms of how FDA has handled the rollback of the REMS. But you also have to wonder if they're operating in sort of this setting where, again, if you push things too far and you get a legal challenge, given how our courts are right now politically, that it could backfire. And so it's a complicated balance there. Well, well, speaking of drugs that are in gray areas that people order online, uh, my KHN colleague Phil Gelwitz reports that four states, Florida, Colorado, New Hampshire, and New Mexico, are now pressuring the Biden administration to allow them to import prescription drugs from Canada in an effort to reduce the cost of drugs for their residents. Now, despite the fact that this has been and remains a very bipartisan ask, the FDA, under both Republican and Democratic commissioners, has strongly objected to it over the years. Somebody remind us why this is so controversial. I think the big thing FDA has objected to is that when you allow importation in the way states have often asked for it, you basically often give up sort of the supply chain oversight that we have in the U.S. that kind of ensures people are not getting drugs that are counterfeit and have somehow been tampered with as they've gotten through the supply chain. And so actually, I was sort of like refreshing my memory, and I can't believe how long ago it is, when the Trump administration first became the first administration to sort of say, oh, actually, OK, we are going to agree that we think this could come safely. Then they put out regulations that sort of tried to basically like made it so that to do importation, you'd almost have to mimic the same supply chain safety measures we already have for the FDA. So it became this double edged sword of like, sure, you can do importation, but you're going to have to jump to this level of hurdles that then makes it sort of unusable. And so I think that's kind of the key barrier here is that can a state actually propose a program that would get sign off? And I think it's not really surprising to me that the Trump team sort of tried to like thread the needle in that way of kind of giving people the win of saying, oh, we'll allow it without actually making it feasible. I think it also highlights like what a weird ask this is in some ways, because what the states are looking to do is they are not looking to import drugs from other countries because they think that other countries have better manufacturing, have better safety protocols, have different drugs. So they just want to import the lower prices that other countries pay for the same drugs. And so this is in some ways like a very kludgy workaround that the states are basically asking for price regulation of drugs, but that obviously is a very difficult uh, political ask. So instead, they're saying, well, can we just import the prices that some other country has negotiated? Uh, and then it raises all these other issues about, well, you know, there is like a reason why, in general, the United States has regulatory control over the drug supply. 
Also, Canada doesn't have enough drugs to serve all of these states. I mean, that's the the thing that I've never managed to sort of get over. And in fact, Canada has said that they're not anxious to do this because they don't have enough drugs to serve both Canada and the United States. I mean, it also seems just literally impractical. I mean, we are seeing, of course, like in the Inflation Reduction Act, there were new measures that would allow uh, Medicare in particular to start negotiating for lower prices for certain drugs. Obviously, that policy has a fair number of limitations, including that it's only for Medicare, um, it's only for certain drugs, and it's not going to be instant. But uh, we did get some new timeline from the Biden administration this week, and it looks like, you know, that policy is going to start rolling out. So I think states are asking for this now because they want to import prices from other countries, but also for the first time, uh, Medicare, the federal government, is starting to take on drug prices directly, and we're going to see how that looks relatively soon. Yes, this sh- this ship turns very slowly, but it does <laughs> seem to be turning a little bit. Well, as we previewed l- uh, last week, the FDA has approved another controversial Alzheimer's disease drug, Lakembi, I think that's how you say it, which has a Q without a U. Sarah, you've been following this. Are we headed down potentially the same road we traveled with Aduhelm? It feels kind of familiar. It's a drug that we think works, but we don't really know and has some big risks and will be expensive. Yeah, I think similar, but but slightly different and perhaps the analogy that things slowly sort of make their way in a, in a different direction is also right here. Um, this drug, I think most people see it as an improvement on Aduhelm because it has in one major clinical trial shown some benefit on people's cognitive decline, sort of just slowing a bit. However, um, the big debate there is that, you know, how meaningful the change that was seen in the trial is. Is it really going to be meaningful in people's lives? And is that worth the price? The company is actually sort of a similar companies involved here, but they priced it quite a bit lower than the original Aduhelm price, even lower than the price of Aduhelm now. It's still seen as on the very high end of what a lot of cost-effective watchdogs say is a fair price. And as of right now, CMS or Medicare is not going to be covering it at all because right now the drug only has what's known as an accelerated approval. So we're going to, over the next probably less than a year and about nine months or so, FDA will have to weigh in on whether it gives the drug a full formal approval. And at that point, we'll see if Medicare kind of also gives the sign off that they think this drug might actually be effective for people and are willing to pay for it. I think my bottom line on this drug is, you know, it provides some hope and some improvement for people, but it looks like to be a small clinical benefit for a big trade off in risks. So I think um, as more data comes out over time, we'll see again if that benefit risk trade off for most people, you know, falls on the right side of the coin. <laughs> and, and, and we'll watch this whole process go forward again. Um, all right. Finally, this week, but not least, uh, there's also news on the health insurance coverage front with the end of open enrollment for the Affordable Care Act coverage rapidly approaching in most states, January 15th. Officials at the Department of Health and Human Services this week reported that enrollment is already up 13 percent from last year to almost 16 million people, including about 3.1 million people who are new enrollees. In the meantime, though, my colleagues over the firewall at KFF report that some 5 million more uninsured Americans are actually eligible for free health care coverage under the ACA. It feels ironic because this is not the first year of expanded subsidies, and there's been relatively little media coverage of open enrollment. Uh, Is it just that it takes time for knowledge of these offers to trickle down to people or that the Biden administration has put a lot more effort into outreach this year? 
I think it's sort of all of the above. I think for the first few years of the Obamacare program, there were a lot of complaints that this insurance really wasn't affordable enough for people. And obviously that's why Congress first in part of the pandemic stimulus bill and, and now again in the Inflation Reduction Act, like really jacked up the subsidies and made the plans cheaper and in many cases have more wraparound uh, benefits so that low-income people could get insurance that was either free or relatively low premium and also didn't ask them to pay a lot out of pocket for their own care. And we can see also that the Biden administration did a lot of outreach. I mean, there's it's definitely the case that they both through Congress made the plans cheaper and also through various administrative actions made the plans more widely publicized. And I just want to highlight, like, I think like last year was the record year for Obamacare enrollment, and now we're seeing this huge increase on top of a record year. So these things seem to matter. I think the affordability of plans, the availability of free plans for a lot of uninsured Americans is very appealing. And yet... The people who are uninsured and poor, I think, are difficult to reach. There is a lot of longstanding opposition to Obamacare. There are a lot of places where there are a lot of uninsured Americans where there's not particularly effective and robust outreach. People don't know how to find these things, how to sign up. And it is really administratively complex uh, to sign up for these plans. I mean, I don't know how many of our listeners have tried to do it. Uh, it's not impossible. It is on the internet. You know, anyone can do it and you don't have to have uh, someone holding your hand. But I think in many cases, you, you probably do want someone holding your hand if it's your first time doing it. There are in many markets, lots of choices. It's confusing. It's hard to know what the best option is. Sometimes a little bit hard to figure out what it's going to cost you until you enter in a lot of information about your income. And you might also be scared that if you're not sure or you put something in wrong, you could get in trouble. So I think this is just kind of an ongoing challenge of getting all these people who are now eligible for these really low cost plans to actually interact with the system and get insurance. One thing I guess bears mentioning is that with the Republicans just, you know, planning to do all of these things like try to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act because they don't like the drug price provisions, they are not talking about repealing the Affordable Care Act anymore, right? Have we finally come to the end of that particular fight? It sure looks that way. Yeah, the right the writing's <laughs> sort of been on the wall in terms of the lack of that talk on the campaign trail for a few years now. I was joking with some colleagues that um, you know, the repeal Obamacare is tired, repeal the uh, uh, drug price negotiation provisions is wired. Um, that that's sort of the new uh, <laughs> the new the new talking point. Although that's not going to happen either, uh, obviously because of the control of the Senate and because of how insanely expensive it would be to repeal that. But the Republicans definitely have moved on to other targets. Although I will say, you know, once again, the fact that that um, House leadership has committed to proposing cuts to health entitlement programs, the fact that they have committed to proposing a budget that balances in 10 years means that I think it will be extremely difficult for them to avoid um, talking about particular cuts or changes to Affordable Care Act programs. Uh, you know, again, it's just like, this is where the dollars are. They can take a lot of dollars out of Medicare. That is very politically unpopular. They can take some dollars out of Medicaid, you know, the largest expansion of which is part of ACA. They can take money out of these subsidies, which, you know, have been kind of supercharged uh, in recent years beyond even what Congress initially passed in 2010. And I do think, as Alice said, you know, this is not a popular talking point. I don't think Republicans, by and large, want to be talking about repealing Obamacare anymore. And yet I think they are backed into this corner where they're going to have to make 
and propose specific modifications and cuts to these programs in order to achieve these kind of high-level philosophical goals uh, that they've signed up for. And so I think it will be interesting to see what does it look like. Maybe they're not going to call it Obamacare repeal anymore, but they might still be sucking a trillion dollars out of Medicaid like some of the Trump administration budgets did. Yeah. And it's important to, to mention again, I mean, the Republicans talk about all these things they're going to do. And people are thinking, oh, my God, if they vote for this, you know, balanced budget in 10 years, it's going to happen. They can't do most of these things without the Senate and or the president, unless they have two thirds to override, uh, which they don't. Uh, the one place that we do think they could exercise some leverage, obviously, is this debt ceiling vote where the Congress has to vote to raise the debt ceiling or the U.S. will default on things that it has already, you know, bought but not paid for, basically paying the credit card bill. Um, and that certainly they're going to try to make some entitlement changes. But um, all of these other things that they say they're, quote unquote, going to do, they're mostly just, quote unquote, making political statements, right? But they're going to have to talk about them. They're going to have to write things down. They're going to have to have specific dollars attached to this. I do think that it will be politically salient and that it will create some visibility into like, well, what, how do you balance the budget in 10 years? What does entitlement reform look like? And they're not singing Obamacare repeal anymore. And they don't want to. They understand that they don't want to. And yet, I think they're going to be in this position where they're going to effectively have to lay out something that looks like Obamacare repeal, something that looks like Social Security reform, something that looks like big changes to Medicare. And we will have a political debate about that because Democrats are just salivating to have those conversations. I think they feel like that is very strong political ground on them. They think that voters trust them to protect those very popular programs if they're under assault, and you know, which is very similar to the political dynamic we saw when Republicans were really trying in earnest when they had full control of government and wanted to repeal Obamacare. Yes. And I would say, as we absolutely saw in 2017, when they failed to repeal it, Republicans very much agree on their goals, but they very much disagree on how to get there. There is no unified Republican plan for for either reforming you know, the Affordable Care Act or Medicare or Medicaid, I mean, except for basically cutting money out of it. So I, I will be interested, as Margot says, to see what they actually put down on paper. And just sorry, just one one more thing on this point, which is, again, I think that the kinds of show votes that the Republican House leadership is going to have to put on these issues are probably not going to be particularly politically productive and maybe politically damaging to them. But I do think setting that aside for the moment, I do think we are entering an environment of much higher interest rates of really more accelerating federal debt. You know, there are a lot of conditions right now that are potentially right for thinking about uh, government spending and particularly thinking about these big categories of government spending that are our federal health care programs. I think the last few years, there's sort of been this sense that, you know, debt is free and, you know, the deficit doesn't matter. And I think inflation is high. Interest rates are rising. I do think that we're in a moment where there may be a greater sense of a need to confront this problem. And I'm interested in sort of like what that conversation looks like, which may be a little bit different than the kind of um, highly ideological conversation that we're going to see in the very near term. I was going to say that that would require actually having substantive talks about what might work, which we don't know is going to happen, but we can cross our fingers and hope. All right. That is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we each recommend a story we read this week we think you should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links on the podcast page at khn.org and in our show notes on your phone or other mobile device. Sarah, why don't you go first this week? Sure. I took a look at a story by Kaiser Health News' Lauren Saucer. Hospitals' use of voluntary staff runs risk of skirting labor laws, experts say. 
I thought this was a fascinating story about hospitals' reliance on volunteers, not for the types of activities I usually associate hospital volunteers with, which would be like candy stripers. Right. Sort of, you know, light. I don't light's not the right word, but, you know, sort of like, you know, visiting people, kind of comforting them in some way, providing kind of added benefits of sorts. Um, and this is really people that are being asked to do medical care and, you know, the basic, some of the basic care you need when you are in a hospital. And I think her story cites about $5 billion maybe in the U.S. of free labor through these types of volunteers. And the question becomes, you know, is this violating labor laws and should these people be getting paid for the work or should they, are they basically, because they're using volunteers, kind of taking money and, uh, you know, job opportunities away from other people. And I thought it was a fascinating story just because I had no idea of all this, you know, sort of volunteer labor was being used and the impacts on these hospitals during the pandemic when they couldn't have volunteers. And just, I think, um, important to think about, too, how this impacts kind of the quality of care as well people receive. Hospitals are very clever. (laughs) Margo. Um, I wanted to recommend an article from Jesse Hellman at Roll Call called Providers Say Medicare Advantage Hinders New Methadone Benefit. And I've been doing a lot of reporting on the Medicare Advantage program lately, and so I was a little bit jealous of this story. Congress just recently required Medicare to pay for methadone, uh, you know, a very evidence-based treatment for opioid addiction that it hadn't been covering before. And uh, what this article found is that these Medicare Advantage plans of private uh, competitors to the government Medicare program have been enacting a lot of roadblocks that sort of make it hard for people to get this treatment. So they technically cover it, but they require often what's called prior authorization, where you have to sort of doctors and others have to jump through a lot of hoops to prove that the person really needs it. And when I saw this article, I sort of like put out a bat signal on my Twitter and I said, can anyone think of of the medical reason why you would want to have, you know, restrict access to methadone treatment. And, you know, this is just a Twitter poll, but no one could come up with a reason. They could think of lots of reasons why the insurance company might not want to cover it because it's expensive, because patients who have opioid addiction uh, probably are pretty expensive in general. And so, you know, this could be a way to avoid paying for complex treatment or a way to discourage patients who have complex healthcare needs from choosing a Medicare Advantage plan. Anyway, so uh, just a just a good story and just, you know, another illustration of, you know, even after Congress uh, does something like add a new benefit, there's always value in doing oversight to see how is that actually working in the real world and is it giving patients the care that was intended. Yes, and we will be talking, I think, much more about Medicare Advantage this year. Alice. So I have a very sad piece to recommend. It is an op-ed by Celine Gounder, who is a public health expert that we all know well, as well as the widow of Grant Wall, the soccer journalist who died uh, covering the World Cup. And she wrote about how her husband's death has been co-opted by anti-vax conspiracy theorists who are trying to draw some connection to what happened to him and being vaccinated for COVID. Um, But she really smartly walks through the misinformation playbook because it it is a very sort of predictable playbook with very sort of predictable points and, you know, dismantles them one by one. And I think it's really helpful for the inevitable next time we see this come up to sort of be be prepared in advance and be able to sort of refute those points. Uh, Very tragic, but very helpful thing to know. Yeah. And Celine is is our colleague now at KHN, in addition to everything else that she does. And I can just say to these trolls, don't mess with Celine. (laughs) 
it really was a very good piece. Well, my extra credit this week is from the Washington Post, uh, and it's a great story that ran in the dead week between Christmas and New Year's. So I want to, I gave it an extra week. It's called Social Security Denies Disability Benefits Based on List with Jobs from 1977 by Lisa Rain. And while I've known for a long time that the Social Security Disability Program has a multi-year backlog, one thing I didn't know until I read this story is that a lot of otherwise likely eligible people get their benefits denied because they could theoretically do jobs that largely no longer exist. Among the jobs the government says people who are disabled might be able to do are nut sorter, dowel inspector, or egg processor. That's because the last time the labor market data used to determine if a disabled person might be able to do a job was last updated 45 years ago. The agency has been working since 2012 to update its listing of jobs that could be done by sedentary individuals, but somehow the new directory of jobs has not made it into use yet. Meanwhile, thousands of people deserving of disability benefits are being steered to jobs that are now largely automated, offshore, or otherwise obsolete, something that clearly needs to be fixed. Okay, that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you could subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ever-patient producer, Francis Ying. As always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth at all one word at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm still at Twitter for now. We're at Jay Rovner. Sarah? I'm at Sarah Carlin. Margo? At Sanger Taft. Alice? At Alice Holstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.